Welcome to this podcast sponsored by the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide trainings to enhance the knowledge of family planning staff. During this episode, we will be speaking with nurse practitioner Jolie Pritzker about the HPV vaccine and strategies to counsel patients and families about this important immunization for cancer prevention. Jolie is a family nurse practitioner who specializes in reproductive and sexual health. She has worked in a variety of clinical settings and currently practices at a federally qualified health center in Vista, California. In addition to her clinical work, she is a trainer for the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning, leading trainings on client-centered counseling, LARC placement, and contraceptive basics for clinical staff. Welcome to the podcast, Jolie. Thanks so much. Happy to chat today. Before we start discussing the HPV vaccine, I'd like to start by asking you about the human papillomavirus, that is, HPV. There seems to be a lot of misinformation about what HPV is and why it's important to talk about, especially for adolescents and young adults. What is HPV and why is it important? As many of our listeners know, the HPV family of viruses are sexually transmitted infections that are passed through skin-to-skin contact. And it's quite interesting because if you ask someone to name some common STDs, they might say chlamydia or herpes or maybe syphilis, but not many people will mention HPV, even though it's exceptionally common. Up to 80% of sexually active individuals will be exposed to HPV in their lifetime. For most people, their bodies will clear the virus without any adverse effects. Some strains of the virus can cause benign genital warts. But for some people, especially individuals who are exposed to the high-risk strains of the virus, it can lead to certain cancers, such as cervical, vulvar, penile, anal, and pharyngeal cancers. The reality is that most people who have HPV don't know it because they're asymptomatic. And even more important, we don't have a reliable way to predict who's going to be exposed and clear the virus, and who's going to be exposed and go on to develop precancerous or even cancerous lesions. According to the CDC, HPV viruses are responsible for over 30,000 cases of cancer every year. We have an immunization that can significantly decrease the risk for these types of cancers, especially when given in early adolescence. Sounds like the HPV vaccine plays an important role in HPV-related cancer prevention. Over the past few years, there have been quite a few changes to the HPV vaccine and recommendations on who should get it and at what age to get the immunization. Can you give us a brief overview of the current HPV vaccine recommendations? Sure. The current recommendation is that the first dose of the vaccine be given at age 11 to 12 at the same time as the routine meningococcal and Tdap vaccines. When the first shot is given before someone's 15th birthday, they only need one booster six to 12 months later. If the series is started after age 15, then it becomes a three-dose series. We know from studies that the two-dose series for younger adolescents is as effective and likely more effective than the three-dose series for older adolescents and adults. The recommendations are the same regardless of gender, so adolescent girls, boys, trans, and non-binary youth should all receive the immunization. I will also know that the first version of the HPV vaccine covered fewer strains of the virus, but they all covered for the HPV 16 and 18 subtypes, which are the higher risk strains for HPV-related cancers. The current formulation of of the vaccine covers nine different HPV strains, including some strains that cause genital warts. But if someone's previously received the two or four valent vaccine, they don't need to start over with the nine valent. 
And I know the vaccine was recently approved for patients up to age 45. Can you tell us a little more about that? Definitely. Up until recently, if a patient was over 26 and had not started the HPV vaccine, it was not recommended to start the series. In October of 2018, the FDA approved the vaccine for use up to age 45. It's important to note, though, that while it is approved for use in adults ages 27 to 45, there's not the same recommendation for universal vaccination like in younger individuals. The Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC recently recommended that for adults over age 26 who are not vaccinated, it should be a shared decision-making conversation between the patient and provider to determine if they would benefit from starting the series. For example, a 35-year-old with one previous lifetime partner who's newly dating again, may benefit from the vaccine if they're going to be sexually active with new partners. Talking to our adult clients about their HPV immunization status and sexual practices is an important part of their preventative health care. And we know that the rates of HPV vaccination are below optimal levels in many places. What are some of the factors that impact whether a patient has received the HPV vaccination or not? It's definitely a multifactorial issue. One important element is the provider's attitude and recommendation about the vaccine. There was a recent 2019 study published in Pediatric that looked at this very issue. The best predictors of HPV vaccine uptake were whether the provider used a presumptive style and made a strong recommendation. This means the provider brings up the topic of the HPV vaccine like any other immunization. For example, Your child is due for the meningococcal, Tdap, and HPV vaccines today. It's strongly recommended that children in this age group get these immunizations. Do you have any questions about them? This approach avoids singling out the HPV vaccine as separate from other routine immunizations. We know this approach improves how parents perceive the importance of the HPV vaccine. This approach isn't meant to close down the conversation about the immunizations, but rather start the conversation from a place of evidence-based practice. Once the provider introduces the recommendation, concerns or questions can be addressed. And in a recent qualitative study on HPV vaccine administration, when parents were surveyed, a common reason for not receiving the vaccine was simply that the provider didn't bring it up. The message that parents received was that it was not a particularly important vaccine because otherwise the provider would have discussed it. And there's also systems level areas to consider. Does your clinic have standing orders for immunizations? Electronic alerts when vaccines are due? Both of these practices are recommended by the Community Preventative Services Task Force, which is an independent non-federal panel of public health and prevention experts whose members represent a broad range of research, practice, and policy expertise in community prevention services, public health, health promotion, and disease prevention. So what are some of the common questions that parents and patients have about the HPV vaccine? One of the biggest concerns parents have is the misperception that receiving the vaccine will encourage their child to have sex. We know this isn't true from research. And at its core, the HPV vaccine is a cancer prevention vaccine that happens to be related to a sexually transmitted infection. It works best when given well before a person becomes sexually active. And that includes intercourse, but also kissing and oral sex since HPV can affect the oropharynx. Younger adolescents, like we talked about a little before, also have a better immune response to the vaccine and therefore only need the two-dose series. A pediatrician colleague shared with me that she approaches the conversation this way. If a family is hesitant, she first asks, are you open to me giving you more information? If they say yes, 
then she'll usually follow up with something like, people want science to find a cure for cancer, right? And usually the parent will agree with that statement. She'll then explain that this helps prevent cervical and some other cancers from happening in the first place. So there isn't even anything to cure. In her experience, drawing the connection to cancer prevention as a whole is quite effective in these discussions with families. And for some families, using the seatbelt analogy can be helpful. We know seatbelts work best when we put them on before we even start driving. But seatbelts don't work so well if we wait to put them on until we're about to have an accident. Similarly, the HPV vaccine is meant to help our bodies develop immunity well before we'll ever need that protection. And it's also important to reassure parents that there's no link between getting the HPV vaccine and sexual initiation. How do you like to talk to your clients and their families about when they have reservations about the vaccine? Unfortunately, vaccines have become a very hot button issue in some practices. There's a lot of incorrect information online and people sometimes have very strong opinions on the topic. I'll mention, though, that we as providers tend to overestimate how much resistance we'll encounter when making recommendations for immunizations. That said, when it comes up, I like to start the discussion by asking something like, what concerns you about receiving or your child receiving the HPV vaccine today? I try to avoid framing it as a why question, like, why don't you want your child to receive the vaccine? Why questions often put people on the defensive and can shut down the conversation. A question that starts with what concerns you opens the conversation up, allows you to gather more information, and tailor your education to the individual and family needs. It's easy sometimes to assume that we think we know why people don't want to do something, but that assumption can lead us astray. Let's say there's a parent who tells the medical assistant that they don't want their 11-year-old daughter to get the vaccine that day. You as the provider just saw another parent earlier who also declined because they didn't think their child needed it because they weren't going to have sex for a long time. Right after that visit, you walk into the room and start on your spiel about seatbelts and better immune response, et cetera, et cetera. The parent then tells you that they actually do want their child to get the vaccine, but their daughter has a swim meet tomorrow, and so she wants to come back next week to get it once that's done. In this case, you just spent precious minutes providing counseling that this family didn't need or ask for. So it's both patient-centered and time-efficient to assess the needs of your parent, patient, or family before jumping into the counseling. Ultimately, it's a client decision as to whether or not they receive the HPV vaccine. For patients or parents who decline, it's important to leave the door open for future discussions. I'll say something like, I hear that you don't want to give this immunization today and want to wait until your child is a bit older. As I mentioned before, I do strongly recommend it as early as possible, so please don't hesitate to let me know if I can answer any additional questions or if you change your mind. This type of comment accomplishes a few things. It lets the patient or parent know that you've heard their decision and rationale. It also reiterates your strong professional opinion while also encouraging the parent or patient to continue the conversation with you in the future. So do you ever encounter situations where there's a disconnect between an adolescent's opinion and their parents? Of course. It tends to come up a little less in the younger age groups, but I definitely see teens who want the HPV vaccine, but the parents are hesitant. Teens are savvy, and they usually recognize the importance of something that could help prevent cancer when they become adults. Often we'll have a conversation together to see if I can address some of the parental concerns. Ultimately, though, we need parental consent to administer the HPV vaccine. In cases where a parent continues to refuse, I will have a conversation with the teen in private and let them know that at the very least when they turn 18, they can consent for themselves and catch up on the immunization then. It's obviously not ideal, but sometimes we have to work within the family situation.
And is there a role for using personal experiences to encourage getting the vaccine? It's certainly an approach that works for some providers. If you feel comfortable sharing that your children have or plan to receive the HPV vaccine, it can be a powerful signal to your patients that you believe in the importance and safety of this vaccine. In my opinion, the more important thing, though, is to find your authentic voice when discussing this topic. Whether it's a personal story, a relevant analogy, or a pre-existing rapport with a patient and family, the more someone feels like you're making the recommendation from a genuine and authentic place, the more impactful they will be. Lately, I've been enjoying this book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear by Danielle Ulfrey. It's a great read and such a powerful reminder that at the core of everything we do as providers is the relationship we have with our patients. We as providers have the medical expertise to make strong, evidence-based recommendations. We also have the responsibility to regularly engage in active listening and tailor our discussions to address the needs and concerns of the people sitting in front of us. This is true in so many areas of healthcare, but especially when it comes to helping families choose to prevent HPV-related cancers. Well, Jolie, that was my last question. Thank you for talking about this very important subject with us today. Thanks so much for having me. For more information on HPV vaccines and discussing them with your patients, listeners can go to the NCTCFP's website, www.ctcfp.org, and click on the Articles of Interest tab in online training. Articles of Interest is an activity with continuing education credits available. Additional podcasts on family planning topics, along with the transcript for this podcast, are available on our website as well. Thank you again for joining us today.